Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other uh, open source projects on Swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Samarin. And uh, today we're talking about uh, ABI stability. Uh, we're going to do kind of an introduction, an overview, kind of a big picture of what ABI stability means, what it is, why it matters, why it may not matter for some people. Um and kind of a high-level overview. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt around this topic. And there has been for, well, several years, really, since it's been top of mind <laughs> right. and swift discussions for at least two years. Yeah, it's been the uh, one of the original goals for the last two releases and was pushed out. Uh, so it was the big thing for Swift 3, um, and that was... It quickly became a non-goal once uh, all these other changes started happening. Um, uh, and then pretty much the same thing with Swift 4. Um, and now it's ABI stability is set for top priority in Swift 5. That's right. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> ne- next year is the year of uh, stability in Swift ABI. Uh, progressively, every next year. But this year they have uh, they have a manifesto. And yeah. they have a dashboard. So that's progress. Yeah. And, you know, like everything else uh, in Swift, you start with a manifesto and then things happen after that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> manifesto proposals. And then the implementation is just an implementation detail. The hard work <laughs> is just defining what needs to happen. <laughs> exactly. As any project manager knows, um, laying out the problem is is actually uh, a big part of the battle. Yeah. So that's been done. Um, and well, yeah. you know, to to the most reasonable extent. Um, I love how the ABI dashboard right in its introduction says, uh, or actually, where does it say this? It does say that as we continue doing work here, we'll be adding items to the dashboard. Um, so this can only grow. It's it's additive only changes to, uh, to the ABI dashboard from now on. Yeah, you can find that at swift.org slash ABI dash stability. Uh, there's not a last updated date on here, unfortunately. Uh, that would be helpful. Um, it's copyright 2017. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the other, um, uh, so the manifesto here uh, was written by Michael Ilsman, although he says uh, this the information here is compiled with uh, through conversations with many other people. So that just seems like a good scapegoat to say, <laughs> yeah, but. If you like the concepts, I wrote them, but otherwise, yeah, it's probably someone else's fault. <laughs> right. No, a document like this necessarily has to be, um, you know, there's there's no one person, I think, who can really fully understand all of the edge cases that are involved when defining what a stable ABI should look like. And if one person thinks that they can, they're probably wrong because the whole point here is being future-proof. Right. And so the best thing that you can do is to talk to as many knowledgeable people as you can to make sure that at least the ways in which they can think that things can expand in the future are covered by uh, what they define as a stable ABI. Um, and you just can't do that with a single person. Right. 
You, I, I really don't think that you can do it with multiple people either. I'm sure that years from now on uh, Swift Evolution, which will be a bastion of communication and cooperation. Um, <laughs> Once it moves to discourse. Oh, is. of course. Yeah. Which is also progressively just next year is the year of <laughs> constructive conversations in <laughs> Swift yeah. Evolution. Right. Um, people will be saying, oh, we can't actually extend the language in this way, in this very specific way, because the... ABI stability doesn't permit us to do it. Um, now, I don't. I I do think looking at the sheer scope of the ways in which um, extension points to the language have been considered, that um, that won't really be a major problem in practice. That you know maybe some implementation might not be possible, but you'll find a different way to build the same kind of feature, uh, just because of the sheer scope of what's been considered here. Yeah, and maybe those trade offs are not quite as good, or maybe they could could have been better in the future. But um, yeah, at least people will have that to complain about instead of access control. Right. <laughs> so let's take a step back here. What is ABI? Um, it's important to define it before we can talk about how to stabilize it. Yeah. Actually, before we before we get started on that, I should say that uh, I talked with Michael Ilsman a while back, uh, and he mentioned the podcast. Um, and in that discussion, he specifically told me that we should not do an episode on ABI stability. So Probably wise words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so listen at your own peril, really. Yeah. So just want to throw that disclaimer out there. Uh, Michael, if you're listening, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, not only that, um, well, actually, we're kind of heeding your advice, Michael, because we won't do one episode on ABI stability. We'll we'll do several. Um, so <laughs> we'll we'll spread out the the pain. Yeah. Um, because it is it is such a dense and complex topic that uh, we we can't just stick to a single episode to talk about it. Yeah. So more to come. More to come. All right. So back to uh, defining what the ABI, what an ABI is. Um, well, I can start with the easy part. Uh, it stands for Application Binary Interface. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. That, okay. So that's now it. that's defined. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. My my understanding of this is that it's the set of rules and conventions that uh, dictate how one compiled binary can talk to another um, with that, that conform to the same ABI. Um, and so traditionally, you have the uh, standard ABI on various architectures, and, and the ABI is something that's typically very architecture specific because it depends on not only you know, CPU architecture, but also uh, operating system in, mm -hmm. in the way that it works. Um, and traditionally, operating systems and architectures have uh, what's called the standard ABI, which is the C language ABI. And um, because that's a good reference point, because C is as old as the earth, mm -hmm. um, it makes for a good jumping off point when other languages... Um, are defining their own ABI, they'll generally do this uh, as an extension to the standard ABI or to have some sort of interoperability layer um, or some sort of partial conformance to the standard ABI so that they can talk to 
other binaries that were, hey, guess what? You're probably not compiled with the same esoteric language. Right. Um, so, you know, if you're writing Rust or Ruby or Swift for that matter, um, a lot of it will enable interfacing with uh, the standard ABI so that it can talk to all these other binaries that are on your system that it needs to link against and talk to. Mm -hmm. So this is how, uh, for example, Swift is able to communicate with C binaries. Absolutely, yeah. Without having to compile all of these libraries that, that ship with the system. Right. Um, so, for example, um, lots of lots of Swift depends on um, system frameworks. And those system frameworks, we all know, are not written in Swift. Right. Um, so it's very important to at least uh, acknowledge that this is the, the big player in town, this, stable, this standard ABI, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not the only ABI. Um, and this is where Swift uh, kind of different binaries that are both compiled with Swift will have their own Swift-specific ABI. And that's why unless you mark um, uh, a, a Swift function or Swift type as at convention C, you can't actually call into it from other binaries. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. Um, and when you use that at convention C, it's basically saying use the standard ABI convention. So mm-hmm. calling convention, layout convention, et cetera. So this is something that um, client programmers will annotate their Swift functions with, or? It is something that library authors okay. will annotate their functions with. Okay. For the most part, a stable ABI um, mostly, well, it's kind of tricky it, because it benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll explain the ways in which we think it benefits everyone, because it might not be the way that you think, because um, there's a lot of FUD, like I mentioned, uh, out there about stable ABI. Um, but it's something that library authors need to consider especially carefully right. uh, as part of their design. But it's something that um, hopefully, once this is all ironed out, uh, that application developers can benefit from it without necessarily having to understand exactly how it works. Mm -hmm. And the reason why there's this kind of disconnect is that an application developer um, versus a framework developer is generally um, the leaf node of the uh, dependency tree that is multiple binaries talking to each other, which means that the application developer is generally... um, it does not need to think of the entry points into their app from a programmatic standpoint. They need to think of their app as it runs and say the GUI that it provides or, or whatever the interface is. Even if it's a command line, you don't really need to think about annotating your code for um, resilience or library evolution. That's why, and we'll get to what this is in a minute here, we're doing a lot of foreshadowing right now, but there's another whole set of conversations around library evolution Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to ABI evolution. um, That uh, And and the reason why it's called library evolution is that it really is mostly pertinent to um, to, to libraries and frameworks rather than end applications. Yeah, and that really helps build up this idea that ABI stability is really this kind of umbrella thing that includes all these different aspects. It's not solely focused on memory layout, 
uh, although that is like a very core component of um, uh, deter- or, or uh, deciding that or declaring a- ABI stability. So the big picture here that is kind of laid out in this manifesto really uses the term uh, compatibility. And that kind of part of that branches outside of ABI stability, I guess, when you think about source compatibility, uh, which we've discussed before. And so you have that source layer uh, compatibility, which is just you know, the the code you're writing. And uh, then we have like the the binary framework and runtime compatibility, um, which is really what ABI is focused on. That's right. And it's interesting that it's split up like this because uh, in Swift, uh, going from Swift 3 to 4, yeah. one of the major goals was source compatibility. Right. And so they've been kind of chipping at this big picture uh, in a layered approach that, will yield the most benefits early on for the vast majority of people writing Swift. Yeah, and so uh, source compatibility was, uh, well, it's pretty much taken care of now in Swift 3. I think there will be some minor uh, source incompatible changes in Swift 4, but nothing massive. Um, So we kind of have this first like compatibility layer across Swift versions kind of settled for the most part. Right. And it is a prerequisite to get to ABI stability. Exactly. Um, is that, well, you need to uh, standardize on on what your source looks like so that you can um, call into other stable libraries um, by uh, kind of understanding the the way that their APIs look, at least, and standardizing on, on what their standard library provides. So it's a logical first step is a source compatibility. Um, now, moving forward, we'll definitely need to make sure that no breaking changes at all happen uh, at the source layer. Um, you know, you mentioned that even in, even running in Swift 3 mode, the Swift 4 compiler um, has a few areas in which the Swift team knowingly uh, breaks source compatibility for reasons that we discussed before. Right. So, for example, the um, new element type to um, sequence, I think. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, not only that, but when you even when you strictly add things to a module, mm-hmm. um, you can uh, break Swift code that consumes it because of the way namespacing works in Swift, where um, if a reference is unambiguous, the module can be omitted. Right. Which means that the minute that you get a conflict added to a module that you're pulling in, your code no longer it may no longer compile. And you can see symptoms of this in like older uh, Swift code bases that have been migrated from two to three. So for example, in um, like the plan grid code base that went through this migration, uh, periodically I find... Uh, very weird, like, oh, this was a migrator issue where you have like foundation.url where it's like fully specifying um, the type name instead of just saying URL because the uh, before you had the NS prefix and it dropped. And you see this actually with like, um, uh, this happens with a bunch of different types uh, in foundation in that migration. And sometimes the migrator... Um can't guarantee that you won't have a type or a declaration uh, 
that is otherwise um, exactly equivalently qualified. And so it has to go the fully qualified route um, just to keep your code compiling. That's that's the source compatibility side of things. Um, but for the most part, when we talk about ABI stability, it's about the application binary interface. It's about the, the rules around um, binary framework and runtime compatibility. And for the most part, you can kind of split the components of those rules into six distinct types. And um, these are all fairly tightly coupled. And I'd even go as far as to say that they're even tightly coupled with source compatibility, but um, that they still kind of loosely fall into six different categories um, that, uh, that you can conceptually help separate them in your mind to understand the impact of, of each one. Right. And Michael kind of lays that out here saying that uh, in the manifesto, he's kind of breaking these up into separate things, but they're all very interconnected um, and inform and influence one another in, in different ways. Right. Yeah. And really, the big picture still applies here, where the goal here is um, extending the language and having multiple versions of the language or multiple binaries compiled with different versions of the language talking to each other moving forward. And that as a whole isn't possible, even if you get 90% of the things in the ABI stability taken care of, because that last 10% will incur breakage Mm -hmm. and that breaks the whole big picture. Right. So you need to, sure, break it up into chunks to have any reasonable chance of accomplishing anything by breaking it down to smaller pieces, but that uh, we won't consider this to be stable until literally all of this is done, or we specifically choose uh, certain areas in which um, the language will not be allowed to evolve in the future uh, if we choose to omit any of these steps. Yeah, and so the these major sections here or aspects of ABI stability. Uh, First is data layout, uh, which is basically memory layout for types. So you have a class and it has properties and how are those laid out in memory? How are those accessed, et cetera? Right. Um, And I I just find the terminology in use here super fascinating because we often have a hard time figuring out the the words for for certain things in Swift. And so uh, types, um, so that includes structs, classes, enums, tuples, etc. Um, but their properties, this document refers to as data members. And so those are either stored members like properties or associated types, which are also stored members um, as part of the type uh, data layout. So that's, yeah, that's the first one. Second one's type metadata, which uh, is useful for the Swift runtime. It's useful for reflection and debuggers and things like profilers uh, or visualizers to understand um, kind of how, how your types are laid out. And this is a prerequisite for having uh, reflection. Well, it's not a prerequisite for having reflection because reflection can still be highly dynamic. And even once the type metadata is fully stabilized, there's still certain types that will require opaque uh, layouts where you the compiler won't know its exact layout at compile time. You'll have to rely on runtime methods to determine that. But it is uh, a critical component to this 
especially for um, uh, types whose layout is not opaque. Mm-hmm. So for things like trivial types or... Um, we should probably elaborate on opaque versus non-opaque right. types. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's getting too far into the weeds for now. Um, we we should just kind of keep it at... Sure. Um, you know, the, the way in which uh, a type's metadata, like its description of itself mm-hmm. is represented, yes. needs to be stable. We can right. leave it at that, right? Sure, sure. Uh, to be continued in a future <laughs> episode. Uh, so next thing, uh, is that good for yeah. metadata? Yeah. The next aspect of this is mangling. And uh, there have been a few blog posts and discussion in the community about this, but um, because um, uh, Swift types uh, are not necessarily globally unique, for example, there's a data type and foundation, but you could have your own data type uh, in your own library, um, you would you can fully qualify the fully qualify those by uh, including the module names like foundation.data or like mylibrary.data. Uh, but the way that the compiler represents these um, is by basically like generating uh, an, a unique name for these uh, types and their members. Yeah, every yep. single declaration um, has a mangled name, uh, and a declaration can be a property, a function, a type. Um, uh, it can it can be anything that you you declare, and the resolved unique identifier for that um, is generally called the uh, USR, the unique symbol resolution mm-hmm. identifier, and that's whenever you see kind of the underscore capital T. Um, and then a whole some bunch numbers of numbers and yeah, some numbers yeah. and then the fully qualified name. Um, that is the, the mangled unique name for the declaration. And it's not fully random, right? Like this, there is a, uh, an algorithm that generates, uh, uh, deterministically generates these names. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's deterministic, uh, for each compiler invocation mm-hmm. but there was a proposal i don't think it it wasn't a swift evolution proposal i think it was a swift dev proposal because it's very much an implementation detail mm-hmm. um that uh someone was looking into um compressing the mangled name uh by using kind of a common lookup table so that common prefixes would be uh compressed because more often than not uh you know, you're going to have common prefixes in your um, USRs because it starts with the module name, basically. Right, right. And because these strings can be very long, especially if there's a lot of generic parameters and if there are overloads um, to your declaration, then this can be very long. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if this was ever implemented, um, this compression of the mangled name. Okay. But I know that it was certainly considered and it, definitely has implications uh, on on ABI stability because it right. it means that, uh, and, and this is why I think it, it was never actually implemented. It was more like a proof of concept uh, because it makes it very difficult to keep the naming stable when you're compressing it based off of the other names that are in the module. Right, right. So not only this uh, hypothetical compression method on these names but just like generating the the names themselves is something that needs to be 
uh, finalized. Um, uh, and after, after which point you, you can't change it in the future. Exactly. And when we say you can't change things, um, you can still add to things, right? Sure. So if say we wanted to add, um, uh, a, a new kind of type in, in Swift, uh, moving forward, then if it uses kind of a different prefix to uh, the the name mangling that just previous binaries just ignore, then things should probably still work. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- this document talks a lot about ABI additive changes, right. you know, ways in which um, if li- if if Swift continues to evolve in the future and, and they want to do things that um, isn't possible with the current ABI, they can still do that in an additive way. Sure. In a way that just previous versions of Swift just will ignore. Right. And so one last thing on this compression of the mangling. The goal there is to reduce binary size? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So that's mangling. Um, and we're about halfway through the six different components to ABI stability. The next one is stabilizing the calling convention. Um, and this is super important when you're dealing with uh, pre-compiled binaries with potentially different versions of Swift. They need to agree on what registers are used for what, um, what is the runtime implication of, uh, of passing arguments to a function. Are they mm-hmm. uh, retained at the call site or at the uh, function side of things, right. right? Or copied or... Or copied, except, exactly. All of that, that is the calling convention, which also needs to be stable. Order of parameters too, right? Absolutely. Uh, in Objective-C, you always pass, like the first two parameters of every method call are self and... Uh, the selector. The, and the selector, yeah. So that's part of Objective-C's calling convention. Yeah, obviously message send. Right, um, is really a C function yep. that, well, it's in large part implemented in assembly, but <laughs> the first two arguments are self in the selector. Uh, next up is runtime. And so in, in this aspect, uh, so Swift exposes uh, a runtime that provides API, APIs for compiled code. Um, so this is like calling into... Uh, or this, so this concerns like memory management, uh, so like retaining and releasing reference types, um, other like runtime type information, um, things like uh, generics, um, and resolving those dynamically. So all the APIs that result or that uh, involve these types of of aspects, right? Yeah. And as as much as Swift tries to um, front load as much of its compilation at compile time, there's still some things that it just can't know until runtime. Right. So for example, if you have a generic function yeah. and you haven't fully closed its specializations, right? So if it's marked as public in your framework and the, it's an open set of what can conform to that generic constraint, uh, then the compiler will need, not the compiler, the runtime will need to look up um, specializations or sometimes even create specializations of this uh, generic method at runtime because it just can't know, say, like the uh, the layout of whatever you'll pass it in. Uh, things like dynamic casting or, or getting type of, uh, of right. a type, right, invokes the runtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, and, and this needs to be stable because the runtime, uh, especially if Apple ever plans on shipping a version of Swift with, say, Mac OS or iOS, uh, the runtime will need to be resilient to um, you running apps with a newer version of Swift or maybe even an older version of Swift mm-hmm. um, that calls into that same runtime. Yeah, so all of those um, kind of reflection features as well. Next up is uh, the standard library. So I think everyone is pretty uh, familiar with this. And so basically uh, for the standard library, the the team needs to ensure that uh you have this binary compatibility with future versions. Uh, so if if you're on a future version of Swift or you're, these different Swift binaries are communicating with each other um, and they're using the standard library, all of that needs to be, you know, that communication needs to be clear, right? Clear and stable. Even when things are marked as deprecated, uh, they'll need to be kept around in the, um, in the standard library because... Uh, as an older version of Swift, as an app that was built with an older version of Swift is running, it won't know what things will be deprecated in the future. And so the future, for example, there might be a future version, like a newer version of Swift that is um, shipped with the OS running an older version of Swift as an application or as mm-hmm. a framework. And so even as you mark things as deprecated in the standard library, they'll need to keep it around um, essentially forever until they want to break ABI stability. Right. Uh, which might happen, right? Um, you might say have versions of the ABI that um, kind of overlap each other, mm-hmm. right? So you could even imagine a world in which the ABI is um, added to fairly frequently, and then you then have a range of time where you want to permit stable ABI. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it can kind of be a rolling window over time, over multiple versions of the ABI as you want to keep things around deprecated for a while and then completely drop it, say, 10 years later. Sure. You know, because ultimately all this deprecated stuff that they'll decide to keep around uh, will add to the binary size. And Mm -hmm. you don't want to have kind of a massive Swift distribution in the name of stability either. Sure, sure. So you'll be, people will need to be very conservative, um, people who are on the standard library team, the language team here. Yeah, and that's why modifying the standard library is not um, uh, just a free-for-all process. You have to go through Swift evolution and any changes to the standard library are pretty highly scrutinized. Yeah. Additions, maybe not as much, Um at least in terms of ABI stability, but any changes, yeah. Yeah. So those are the six major components to what defines ABI stability. And for the most part, as an application developer, how should, why should you care about this? Um, why should you not care about this? Uh, right? There's yeah. two sides to this. Um, do you want to give us your take? Well, I, th- I think for at least a lot of, iOS and macOS developers, um, it's largely a non-issue on a day-to-day basis. Uh, yes, you have to recompile your apps and uh, any libraries that you link to with every new version of Swift. Um, but as far as like your standard app development, I feel like it doesn't have a, a huge like immediate impact. 
um, you can kind of keep going. You have to recompile for new versions, and it's not uh, largely uh, impactful, I think. Yeah, um, there's definitely but. some positives that you'll see out of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, once Apple starts shipping Swift in macOS and iOS, um, oh yes, as part of the system, right. then your app, your application bundles will be smaller. Yes, um, forgot about that. Right, so I, th- right. I think there's about eight or ten megs now of Swift dynamic libraries that are included in an app bundle per pl- per architecture. Yeah, so you have to yeah you have to bundle the standard library and uh, the runtime, right? Or uh, yes, yeah. um, plus probably six or seven other dynamic libraries. Okay. Um, there, there is no single kind of Swift runtime dynamic library mm-hmm. um, because uh, Arc is its own dynamic library, right. for example. Right. So that's one thing, right? So your end users will have smaller apps that they download. Um, uh, you know, this is a yeah. big deal if your app is currently 12 megs, but it's probably not that big of a deal if your app is 200 megs. Right. And unfortunately, there's more and more of that on the store uh, these days. Um, so it will have an impact, but keep in mind that, you know, you, you can't rush into this um, mm-hmm. ABI stability just in the name of shaving uh, those eight or so megs uh, per per app bundle because locking this down means that you're constraining the ways in which the language can evolve in the future. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, because of the massive effort and the big scope of this ABI stability effort, um, there should be plenty of space to evolve in the future. But um, it needed it needs to be very carefully thought out, right? So you can't just uh, get the benefits today while still keeping the language in in an evolvable state. Right. Yeah. So if you look at this extra binary size, it's kind of just this minor side effect. It's almost to the benefit of application developers to not have a stable ABI because that means you can get these new uh, or improved APIs in the standard library or new language features that can come more easily uh, and more quickly because you don't have these considerations. Obviously, the downside to that would be like these migrations that we had before, um, just in terms of the the idea of this overall compatibility. Um, but yeah, that's another thing yeah. to think about. Um, one thing that you might not really have considered is that uh, this might be more work for you as an application developer once Apple starts shipping Swift with its OS because um, previously you've never had to worry about your app working uh, in multiple versions of Swift. When you ship to the App Store, you ship with a single version and you're essentially in full control of the environment in which your app runs in uh, as far as the language is concerned, Mm -hmm. um, OS being a side, where you're shipping the whole language with your app. Right. And once that no longer happens, when you're relying on the version of the language that ships in the OS, you'll have to test your compiled app, not just like the the compiling from scratch in a version, but your compiled, say, Swift 4.1 app or Swift 5.1 app with um, the Swift 5 ABI and runtime, Swift 5.0.1 and .0.2 and... Right. Exactly. This will be. This might be um, fairly problematic, especially because 
even though the Swift team, I'm sure, will take every precaution to uh, keep the language as stable as possible, there will be differences. There will be bug fixes. Mm-hmm. You might be relying on buggy behavior from a previous version of the runtime, right. for example. And may not even realize it. And may not even realize it. And then in the past, um, the effects of uh, regressions or breakages to stability in Swift have been fairly minor. And and when I say this, I mean when the intent from Apple or from the Swift team is to keep things stable. And for whatever reason, there's a regression or there's a slight modification the negative effects of that have been fairly minimal because you as a developer had to kind of opt in to use that version of Swift. Right. You had to download the version of Xcode. You had to build and run it. And so um, you kind of had uh, a certain safety in that process. That safety will be mostly gone <laughs> right? Um, once Apple starts shipping versions of Swift with its OS. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how how that plays out and how uh, Xcode evolves to help us deal with that. Um, I mean, there's already, if you look at the the matrix of things to test, let's say if you support iOS 9, 10, and 11, all of those OS versions on all the devices you support if you're iPad and iPhone, and then now add to that oh, you have to test Swift 5 and Swift 6 and make sure that everything is still okay. The architectures of those devices as well. Yep. Your matrix can get pretty large. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, that's it for this episode. So again, this is going to be the first episode of a few about ABI stability. Yeah, we look forward to talking more about this uh, complex topic that we clearly uh, don't know all that much about. Um, If you uh, enjoy listening to the show, we encourage you to leave a review on iTunes. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback and just chat with you about anything that we've discussed um, on spectrum.chat slash specfm slash swift dash unwrapped. If you go to spectrum.chat, you should be able to find it from there. You can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. I'm on Twitter at SimJP. And I'm on Twitter at Jesse underscore Squires. Thanks for listening.